Hello, hello, and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Max Tillman, coming to you from the studios of 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation and right across Australia on the Community Radio Network. This program is produced in association with the UTS Business School, and each week we take a closer look at the numbers that make up the news. We'll start today's show with a fun fact. Did you know the University of Karouin, founded in Morocco by Fatima Alfiri in 859 AD, is considered by some to be the oldest degree-granting university in the world. And yes, over a thousand years later, they're still issuing degrees. It's an interesting footnote in world history, but as Australia's university sector faces a new reform package spurred by a need for job-focused degrees, the role of a university and their historical place in society has once again become a very hot topic. Late last week, Federal Education Minister the Honourable Dan Tian announced a new plan for Australia's higher education sector. Under the new overhaul, subjects in nursing, psychology, English, languages, teaching, agriculture, math, science, health, environmental sciences and architecture will all be cheaper. However, students enrolling to study law and commerce will have their fees raised by 28%. For those wanting to study humanities courses, fees will be more than double, putting them alongside law and commerce in the highest price band of $14,500 a year. While it may seem archaic to some now, An education in the arts and classics at university was once seen as an essential part of growing up. Just look to the writings of Edward Gibbon or the original vampire, Lord Byron himself. But is finding work more important than asking questions? To discuss what this means for the future of learning and the classical role of the university in this brave new world is today's panel. Professor Michelle Baddeley is a behavioural economist and the Associate Dean of Research and Development at the University of Technology, Sydney. And Professor Keith Dobney is the Head of School for the School of Philosophical and Historical Inquiry at the University of Sydney. The government have made it very clear that their new policy ultimately boils down to how job-relevant a degree has been deemed. Now, for the Mm -hmm. arts and humanities, that 113% increase in fees under that rationale is a pretty damning indictment on employability, but also utility for a COVID recovery. For agricultural studies and maths degrees, it's a 62% decrease. Teaching, nursing, clinical psychology, English and language degrees, it's down 46%. So just to start off, are we witnessing a shift at the moment in how we understand higher learning away from that classical understanding going back to as far as Plato's Academy serves a very distinct purpose of providing a qualification for a job. Yeah so the thing that struck me was Cardinal Newman's idea of a university and and sort of the idea around universal education but the move towards that has been happening for many decades now towards more vocational education less emphasis on the value of education in itself but I think that's problematic for all the reasons that have been well explored in the various responses to this so I guess there's two issues is firstly is it is if it is about the sort of vocational imperative if you like and if it is about that have they got that right because I've been looking at the table of the fee increases and it, it actually doesn't really make much sense even from a vocational perspective as somebody that's um that is interested in evidence and data and I hope the government and the, the people who are making these decisions uh, are also interested in this that the data just doesn't stack up that humanities and arts and social sciences degrees aren't, aren't uh, you know, we're not providing employability. You know, we're providing more employability for, for, for people with those kinds of degrees. Most government wouldn't exist or wouldn't operate without people with humanities degrees. 
there's lots of evidence that uh, that, uh, that people with those kinds of backgrounds and degrees have uh, a, a better employability, but also higher salaries. So this doesn't make sense in terms of uh, employability, you know. But I don't think a university degree should be about that. And I think that's a conversation we need to have at a much higher level because what what is a university education for in the end? And I agree with that completely because it's it, it's about humanity and what drives us, what what the essence of humanity is. And the essence of humanity is not robotic decision making in a way. And, and anyway, everything's moving towards a more multidisciplinary understanding of knowledge anyway. So this idea that, you know, certain silos are privileged over others mm. completely misses the point of where knowledge is is going in the future as well. Mm. And Professor Dobney, what's the response been by the researchers and academics within your department? Are there concerns about job cuts or even their value to the institution that they work for? Well, of course. I mean, the, the COVID-19 crisis has put a, a huge strain on higher education, not just in the uh, University of Sydney, just, not just in Australia, but across the planet. So there's a whole business model that, uh, that needs to be re-looked at in terms of uh, government support, government funding, international fees, all those kinds of things, which are you know nuts and bolts. But then on, the, on a higher level, there's what are we actually going to deliver for, for, for the next generations and, and the generations that are, that are getting degrees now? How can we actually put those on a, on a platform that actually makes them employable, makes them um, citizens of the world and, and, and can take up new opportunities? Obviously, we need an infrastructure and an education system that delivers that. And education... As a, as a business and a, and a deliverer of, uh, of real economic impact in, in Sydney, for example, is huge. So there, you know, it's not just about the job cuts and the issues impacting the institutions. It's what that then looks like and means for um, the student body and the, the people that rely on the income that those students, the, the accommodation, the, the food, the, the social events. You know, there's an, this, there's an entire industry arts degrees. That's always been an historical breeding ground for young activism. Do you think that in many ways that understanding of a university as somewhere where you can cut your teeth politically and find your ideological niche is going to potentially disappear if, as we say, the degrees become more vocationally targeted and there's less of an emphasis on exploring yourself? Now, this whole manipulation of, uh, of education and, and value, the value system that politicians are trying to put on different types of, of education and different types of degrees and different types of learning is crazy, essentially, because they're all valuable, but they're also all adding to society. Uh, all we'll end up with is a bunch of, uh, of graduates who are not exploring the world, not understanding um, the complexities of the world, not having those conversations that they need to have with their peers, with their um, tutors, and also with their f- fellow students. And not, you know, there's this whole idea that we need to get students that are job ready, but we need to get them life ready as well. And that, there will be a huge gap in those students if we're just focusing on um, science, engineering, economics. You know, the arts and the humanities are where um, the complexities of life are really explored and dealt with. And they're also not on their own. They're part of the scientific debate as well. And a lot of interdisciplinary space and a lot of subjects that you would think would never have relevance to modern day society have real relevance. But they're not that obvious. And maybe it's maybe it's time that we actually made that a bit more obvious and, and made that more clear to um, to politicians because the value of a university education is not about what you learn, it's about um, finding out who you are and also finding out how to think and be critical 
those are skills that you know can't be matched in a, in, a, in a workplace and in and making you a, a great member of society. Professor Baddeley, behavioural economics is ultimately the science of decision making, and the government's new plan is all about decision making. It's trying to convince young Australians to make job ready choices on a very sort of primitive level. Are human beings likely to actually take the lead of the government, or do you think passion will still prevail over price? Well, that, that's a very interesting question. The, the rationale for, for this policy is, of course, incentive, so it's st- standard economics. But whether they really thought that through very carefully, I don't know. But that's what they're trying to do is incentivise uh, young people to head themselves in particular directions. And I guess it misses the point. There's a literature in behavioural economics about intrinsic versus extrinsic motivations. So the idea that that people do things just for money and just because of what they'll get paid is, is a very limited understanding of, of what motivates people to do things. So, so many people will want to head for jobs that are their passion and that sort of intrinsic motivation, uh, following a passion or pride in a job done well, pride in craftsmanship, all those sorts of issues go beyond the purely monetary incentive. So it's very much a focus on the monetary incentives and not on the broader drivers behind people's decisions and behaviours. I guess it's not necessarily paternalistic in a traditional sense because it's sort of saying, well, effectively, these are the prices you're paying and respond to the prices. And apart from that, it's your choice. I mean, that's going back to a sort of pretty standard uh, free market style of rhetoric that you wouldn't be surprised to hear from a coalition government. So, yeah, I think it's quite complex. But another thing that's happening internationally with governments is a focus on the limits of measuring macroeconomic performance purely in a, a monetary sense and, and moving towards thinking more about well-being more broadly. And this sort of policy misses that well-being point entirely, I would argue. The architect of Australia's HEX system, ANU economist Bruce Chapman, told the Sydney Morning Herald that the government's overhaul of the university fees will not directly impact people or it won't direct people into priority employment areas because that access to that long-term interest-free loan shields many young Australians from those price signals that the government keep talking about. So do you think as a behavioural economist that the desired effect of those price signals is likely to make a difference? Yes. So that taps into another area of behavioural economics, which is about present bias, the fact that people tend to make their decisions on the basis of what is tangible and immediate. And so the fact that they're paying this back through the tax system in the far distant future might, uh, for some people, mean that it's not really a salient cost to them. It it means very little to them in terms of what they might be paying in many years in the future if they hit a certain salary level. That would be a simplistic insight around that from a behavioural economist perspective. But, But I would say that... For certain groups, just the signal it sends would be would be problematic for certain groups. So when the UK was following along behind the sort of Australian model of higher education funding, there was a lot of concern around the idea that for people from disadvantaged backgrounds, that just these sums of money would be real disincentive to even considering 
I'm very lucky to come and be um, a recipient of the UK academic system, the UK education system, the university. I'm the first in, I was the first in family ever to go to university. In those days, it's a long time ago, I'm quite old now, fees were paid for by the government. There is no way on God's earth I would have made a decision about um, going uh, and paying for a degree that wasn't going to look like I had to pay a big chunk of money back and I wasn't going to earn a lot of money. So I would have never have done, you know, I'm an archaeologist. That would be a subject nobody would have even thought uh, I would should be doing and, and probably not myself even though I really was interested in it I think it's going to impact the behavior of uh, low socioeconomic and minority groups that's my big concern that's certainly the case in the UK and also there's a credibility issue as well so and I think this was I guess working in higher education in the UK at the time so sort of I, I got some perspectives on it but but even the thought of those large sums of money and there's a sort of credibility issue oh the government says now that we're not going to have to pay it back until we're earning whatever whatever but do people actually trust that's true because certainly the way that the books of student debt were sold around in the UK pretty quickly contrary to what had been promised you know that there was a promise that the, the student debt would always be publicly owned and never be sold to to a private finance company or whatever but all those promises around what the government will or won't do in getting people to repay their debt. You know, do people believe that? But I think there's also a bigger issue here, um, which the government is failing to think about. Amazing historic times at the moment. We're looking at a world where we might not, we'd have no idea where we're going to go in, in, in that direction and what is important and what isn't important. But you know, we, we're going to need a, a, a nimble, a diverse and a, mm. an inclusive society of people that can think and you know, laterally and do all kinds of different things. And there is no way if we channel our future generations into specific vocational degrees only at the moment in, in the sciences and engineering that we're going to have that society and we're going to be able to deal with these kinds of crises in the future. It's the very fact we have this diversity of, of uh, brain power that allows us as, as humans, and I'm an archaeologist, so I studied going back a long way to, to deal with this kind of stuff collectively. And that mm. is incredibly important. And no subject is worth less than another. Mm. And I think I completely agree with that diversity point. That is that is so important and um, in getting that collaboration between all these different approaches of thinking around the world and particularly understanding uncertainty. So from an engineering perspective, you know, it's a world in which things are very predictable, risks are measurable, and so, in a sense, you might need some heavy computing power, but you can come up with the right answer. But we're not in a world of quantifiable risk at the moment. We're in a world of deep uncertainty. And the areas of knowledge that will help illuminate that uncertainty are, are the arts and humanities, without a doubt. The new system would place art students in the highest price band of $14,500 a year, meaning an art student's contribution to the cost of their degree would be higher than someone studying medicine. University has always been the great equaliser in society, as we've already been discussing, and it's always given the best and brightest the structures to rise above their station and achieve great things. But if those price signals have their desired effect, then as both of you have already mentioned, many people will be ultimately unable to choose that path. Uh, now, the government has earmarked a yearly $500 million war chest for Indigenous and low socioeconomic students to help them attend university. However, it's 
very easy to question how much of that money will be spent on students wanting to study the arts and humanities. So could the arts and the classics soon become the realm of a wealthy elite at universities? Yes, yes, because, um, you know, these, these are large sums of money. It would seem like the sort of luxury that any rich people can afford maybe which would be which would be a terrible outcome and is that almost the classical understanding of education going back to the sort of enlightenment era the gentleman scholar kind of yes. byron-esque yes. adventure most of my career at, at cambridge and um they they have spent for, have for years now really tried so hard to to overcome that sort of tradition in terms of the sorts of applicants they were attracting as well. And that's another hurdle because if if education in these sorts of subjects becomes associated with a particular socioeconomic group, then that's another hurdle to, to navigate because the colleges of Cambridge really struggled to encourage talented young people from disadvantaged back or underrepresented backgrounds to even apply because they thought this is not for me, which just disadvantage becomes entrenched. It becomes path dependent. There are only certain sorts of people head down certain career tracks. And certainly for Oxford and Cambridge in the UK, the city of London is full of Oxbridge undergraduates. The civil service is full of Oxbridge undergraduates. Those networking impacts you know, are, are enormous. And so I think in terms of entrenched disadvantage, it's really problematic. Professor Dobney, do you have anything to add? I worry, as Michelle does, about uh, the inequities in this potential policy and the inequities that would cause in socioeconomic groups. You know, seeing this firsthand, you know, me in the UK going from a, a rich university in Durham to a, a Scottish university, you know, the, the contrast of the confidence and the Mm. And, and I worry that if we create a kind of apartheid in, in education here, if this, these policies go through, we'll end up with a system which not only creates a society that we won't recognise and wouldn't want and wouldn't be able to cope with the future um, challenges to come, but also a society that is just even more inequitable than it is at the moment. I'm passionate about um, creating role models for these weird subjects like classics and ancient history and archaeology and things people think are just... You know, academics do this, but you know, there's a whole range of stuff that um, that is done, and a whole range of interdisciplinary spaces that are filled that are relevant. But we want role models and, and young people to you know to understand that anybody can do these things if they're interested, mm-hmm. uh, and we want to get into schools and to, you know into socioeconomically deprived areas to say, you, you know, I I I I can do this. I've done this. Of course, you can. I come from the same background. You can do that. But they don't want to listen to a crusty old white guy with a white beard. They want to listen to, you know, the, the students that are doing this saying, I'm really enjoying this. This is why I'm doing it. This is and the people that have then left all those different arts and humanities degrees, of which we have thousands in amazingly diverse jobs from spirings right the way through to, you know, CEOs to um, personnel to entrepreneurs to you name it. They're everywhere and they are glad mostly that they've done the degree they did and had a wonderful time and enjoyed and that's where they found themselves that's where they got their ideas that's where they got the drive and their ambition we are in danger of just putting a fire hose on that and that's crazy it's about tolerance as well tolerance of a whole range of different ways of thinking about things of doing things and and those sorts of arts and humanities subjects 
build an understanding of different ways of doing things, of thinking about things, and, and builds tolerance in a diverse society as well. Senator Pauline Hanson has jumped onto the discussion in the last few days. She said, I've done all right in politics without a university degree. People with degrees in politics don't know what the average person wants. So has the senator landed on an interesting point here regarding elitism versus populism. As we've already mentioned, studying the classics has been almost a birthright for the Western elite since time immemorial, and it looks as though in many ways these price targets could see an effective return to that. So it's interesting to see how utility has become the clear narrative here on one side of the argument. There's a very firm argument that if a degree does not have a direct vocational use or utility, then it isn't valued in Australia's future roadmap. So is this part of a bigger social shift that we're seeing sort of away from those old understandings of elitism? There's a whole new political order that's uh, sweeping the planet and uh, there is a tendency to to look for victims and to look for um, groups that are uh, considered to be uh, different. And I think, uh, you know, that's that's what humans have been doing for millennia, particularly in large groups. But the way that that uh, politicians and, you know, the, there's some cynicism behind this. You know, I really do believe that there is, certainly in the UK, there was until recently um, almost a, a culture war against uh, against um, universities as they were perceived to be places where, you know, we had uh, elite people, which is why, you know, over the last 20 years, successive UK governments, including Labour and Conservatives, have um, really supported the expansion of new universities, but they've been kind of, you know, at, at the expense of all the vocational um, institutions. You know, they turned them all into universities. There were polytechnics, there were technical colleges, there were higher education. We had lots of apprenticeships. They all disappeared, and now we're all wondering where all the plumbers are. Uh, you know, they've all got degrees, mm-hmm. and they can't you know, weld, weld a pipe together. So essentially, this is not of the university's making. This is mm-hmm. over generations of social engineering that I think has gone wrong and now is biting us in the bum. And, mm-hmm. and this, this Australian government, I, I've only been here since February, what a great time to arrive. This to me seems crazy. You know, this is another yes. nail in, in the coffin of a, of, a, of, a, of a warped society that essentially mm-hmm. will, going forward, will not be nimble enough, smart enough to actually deal with the, challenge, the real challenges that are going to come on the back of COVID-19 mm-hmm. and, and everything else that we're having to deal with. And that, that's a very important con- inconsistency, isn't it? This, this focus on university vocational education whilst not, not having the, the vocational training available in other sorts of ways and the German system is great you know free university education for those who who want it very very nominal sums of money that uh, undergraduates have to pay for their degrees but a really strong and robust system for vocational education and training and and you know that's why the German economy is is so successful in so many ways. We're seeing around the world efforts to erase the physical remnants of many of the darker aspects of Western history. Uh, Does the government's policy, by diminishing the value of studying the past, make healing some of Australia's historical scars, such as Indigenous deaths in custody, much harder to face in the future without the appropriate voices to lead it? Yes, I think that that, that's an important point. And it gets back to the points about diversity and tolerance and understanding history. If history becomes devalued, oh, understand even from a, a purely pragmatic 
economic perspective, understanding history is so important. I mean, understanding something like the global financial crisis from the perspective of similar crises that had happened in the past. It's just a very narrow economic example. But more broadly, how, how can we how can we develop a, a society and culture that's moving forward progressively if we don't understand the past? And the past includes past mistakes. It's not about sanitizing history, is it? But it's a, it, that's a tricky one, isn't it? Because how can the distinction be made between remembering the past and celebrating the past? I think that's a very tricky balancing act. I think the simple answer is that everyone should understand how complicated life mm. is and was. Mm. Yes. So that we actually then have a way to think about what it might be like. And joining those three bits together is, is what I think hopefully most universities degrees do. It's not about the subject you study, although that's interesting. Study the subject you love. There are many vocational subjects, medicine, law, you name it, that you know the engineering the government focused on. But it's not about it's not about a vocation mostly. You know, the primary re- reason for it and, and the, the point of a university degree is to teach people to think respectfully, to be critical, to go away and assimilate information and data and uh, take other points of view into, into consideration, to then articulate some kind of argument or a, a come to a, a view and essentially then deliver whatever it is that, you, that is appropriate uh, on the basis of all that knowledge. It's a real training. It doesn't matter what, what degree you're doing. That is the most important thing about a university degree. And that is one of the most important skills that we can ever learn. It will make us fit for purpose in all kinds of um, aspects of life. And it will make us human beings that actually can work with each other and go forward and you know make this a better world. That's, the, that's kind of the whole point. It sounds a bit sad and a bit you know sort of fluffy but it's true we get rid of those things and what are we well they say history is written by the victor so only time will tell whether a pitch to vocation will prove the tonic to our covid woes and while many young australians will readily accept the government's carrot how many young Australians will still be willing to face the stick? That concludes another episode of Think Business Futures. Thank you to our guests, Professor Michelle Baddeley and Professor Keith Dobney. Make sure to catch the full show on your favourite podcast provider and don't forget to tell your friends. I've been your host, Max Tillman. See you again next week.